podcast, cutting edge conversations with the quant community. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Quantcast, Risk.net's podcast on quant finance. I'm Mauro Cesar, quant finance editor of Risk. And today it is a great pleasure to welcome back Professor Alex Lipton, Global Head of Research and Development at Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. Hi, Alex. Thanks for joining Hello. us again. Thank you. As always, it's a pleasure. Um, over the years, your name has been associated with uh, several very different areas of research you contributed to, from effects, I think that was at the start of your career, to rates, credit, volatility modeling, monetary policy. Uh, last time we recorded the podcast, uh, it was about trading strategies, uh, where when you were a guest with uh, your now colleague, uh, Marcos uh, Lopez de Prado. Um, am I there mentioning that you've even ventured into writing a history book? But uh, maybe we will leave that one out for a more appropriate podcast. Uh, today, true. we'll focus on decentralized finance instead, uh, a subject you have been uh, researching on for uh, a few years now. Uh, Ristonet just published the paper you co-authored with Arthur Sepp, uh, titled Automated Market Making for Fiat Currencies. Uh, in there, you present a framework to exchange currencies using blockchain. Uh, I have for today a few questions on uh, this paper. And, uh, and then it'll be great to discuss more broadly about blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and uh, distributed ledgers applications. Uh, okay. May I start, Alex, by asking you uh, to explain what is the contribution of this paper with Arthur? Okay. Thank you, Maura, and uh, for this kind introduction. And uh, the paper we're talking about is dedicated to something uh, very specific as uh, part of the broader approach to decentralized finance, that is how we can reorganize the FX trading in a more transparent um, and uh, uh, more equitable fashion, so to speak. And so one of the possibilities which we discuss in the paper is to use the uh, concept of an automated market maker uh, which I will dwell upon in a moment, and uh, apply it to the avatars of fiat currencies represented by either stable coins or central bank digital currencies on the blockchain and uh, using a smart contract for exchange one currency to the other. Whilst the idea of using uh, automated market maker in the context of blockchain is not new it has been circulated around for like maybe two three years until now the main application was very idiosyncratic that is exchange of one stable coin to the other which is in the big picture of things is a rather boring exercise because if things are designed uh, properly um if things are designed properly, then stable coins should actually retain their value at one, right? So you exchange one into one. Whilst, uh, as far as we know, nobody tried to seriously consider using the same technique for actually exchanging fiat currencies, which is a much more interesting and broader problem, which is important to kind of gazillions of people, right? And so we have shown that by using uh, various uh, uh, functions, so to speak, uh, which underpin 
the operation of the corresponding automated market maker, you can actually achieve a reasonable profitability for the liquidity provider and reasonably inexpensive way of exchanging one currency into the other by using this idea. And that has been tested by using the actual real market data coming from a particularly randomly chosen day in the life of a foreign exchange for G10 currencies. Right. So that's our accomplishment. And if I may add one more thing, sure. perhaps uh, for exchanging, you know, like uh, currency pairs like Euro dollar and so on, that might not necessarily be, you know, that necessary, even though still I think it's a useful thing. But for exchanging illiquid currency pairs, the ones where you have to go through a third currency to exchange, like for example, um, say Indian rupee into Indonesian, uh, you know, currency, uh, then, you know, you have to, there is no direct exchange, you have to go through the dollar and stuff like that. And so that allows you to do it directly. I see. And uh, can you explain uh, how the market making framework you present in this work work? Uh, yes, it's actually quite a brilliant idea. I, I wish it was mine, but it has been known before. So the 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 approach is quite simple. You just say, okay, so I I am viewing it as a liquidity provider, and so what I do is I put, for example, in euro dollar terms, you know, say a million dollars on the dollar side of this pool, and say, uh, say a million point five or and, and then a million euros on the other. So an equal amount of, you know, cash. Or in fact, it can not necessarily be equal, but say equal. And also euro, as we see, you know, it, <laughs> relentlessly moving towards parity anyway. So at some point it's not a, <laughs> impossible to imagine that one million euros will be worth exactly one million pounds. But say, you know, you put some amount. And then you say there is a very simple rule. And this rule can be as simple as, uh, you maintain the sum of euros and dollars, uh, maybe weighted sum with some kind of rescaling coefficient, some constant. Or you can say the number of euros times the number of dollars is kept constant, right? And so that's, uh, or you can consider the third variation, which is a combination of the two. And then you say, okay, I open this pool to whoever wants to come and arbitrage me and so by say for example putting a certain amount of dollars and removing a certain amount of euros in such a way that the product continues to be the same right and so that's essentially the rule so it's a mechanical rule of making markets right so uh, of course if i put something uh, simple as a sum, constant sum, then it would always be a bank bank. So essentially it would be uh, optimal to either have only euros in the pool by arbitrage taking away all the dollars or only dollars, you know, when the price changes one way or the other. That's of course, it's a little bit too extreme. So if you put a product, then the pool will never be exhausted, right? So there would be, regardless, when you start to, take away say euros because it's beneficial for you the number of dollars you need to put becomes so large that at some point it becomes kind of prohibitive and so that's how you will always have some liquidity and of course 
the most important thing here is that if you were a liquidity provider doing exactly as I described, then you will open yourself to arbitrage and you will be arbitraged to death. So what happens is that you introduce a little bit of transaction cost by way of saying, mm -hmm. if you put so many dollars, you can only take uh, you know, a little less euros than is strictly defined by this product rule. And so this way, every time you're being arbitraged, something is being paid to you uh, in order to cover your sort of your trouble. And so uh, experience suggests, and that's what we did in the paper, is that you, if you actually do it uh, within the real exchange rate and so on and so forth, then in the end of the day, the liquidity provider actually ends up with a certain profit. And this profit, which of course is random, like any other financial activity, there is no way of making a certain profit. So in some instances, you can actually lose money by doing it. But in general, it provides you maybe like 5-10% return for the year. So nothing kind of dramatic, not hundreds of percentage. But at the same time, given what the bonds are paying these days and so on, or at least were paying when the paper was written, it's actually a very decent return given the relatively low risk and that's what the paper is about right and just to um get the uh, on-chain mechanism into the picture can you describe the interaction between uh, off-chain and on-chain venues uh that's an excellent question and again it goes to the heart of the darkness so to speak you know it goes uh, basically to the fact that the kind of blockchains and information which is available to the blockchain itself is the thing in itself so to speak external information right so what happens on the external exchanges can only be available through oracles which are providing information from the outside and by and large they're not necessarily fully decentralized even though people mm. constantly try to build more and more decentralized mechanism but at the end of the day external information and internal information have to be you know um used through this oracles and the idea is that if you see that uh, at the external exchange uh you know the rate is such and so you can arbitrage the pool until you know the exchange rate within the pool becomes an agreement with uh, exchange rate outside of the pool or you of course you can do it the other way around you can do sort of kind of arbitrage outside and then kind of uh, cover it in the pool itself and that's how it works but the truth of the matter is that as i said there is a certain information which is intrinsic to the blockchain that is a relative a composition of say euro and dollar in this liquidity pool and that it defines the internal value of the euro in terms of the dollar within this liquidity pool right so the idea is that you want to arbitrage internal and external price but the hope is if this idea catches up and that can take a few years i would say and so on then in in the end of the day the composition of the pool would define the value of one currency in terms of the other i see um i thought this idea was uh, still purely theoretical but you just mentioned that there's an example there's an application that's been experimented so uh, the question uh, i would ask here uh, 
where are we in the journey between the theory and the practice of uh, this framework? Uh, this is an excellent question, and uh, I would say that I know several attempts to actually do it in practice, including uh, including um, some uh, leading, I would say, uh, central banks, but I'm not at liberty of naming them. So when they feel that they're ready to announce it uh, to the world, I'm sure they will do it themselves. But I mean, there are certain experiments in this regard, uh, which I am aware of, uh, which is done all the way up to and including central banks. I see. Uh, I understand the framework uses stable coins or uh, central bank uh, digital currencies. Uh, what is the consequence of one of them, the, the, uh, the framework uses, uh, being depegged? Oh, this is a super interesting question, particularly in conjunction with, as we speak, such a depegging is happening. And the answer to your question is as follows. The stable coins, or even better, central bank digital uh, currencies, uh, which we envisioned cannot be depegged because the, if it is a central bank digital currency, it cannot depeg by definition because it would mm -hmm. be just a digital avatar of the corresponding um, fiat currency. If it's a stable coin, it has to be built properly. As I explained in my recent book uh, uh, with uh, Adrian Tricani, which is called Blockchains and Distributed Ledgers, um, Econo mathematics, technology, and economics. There is a whole ch chapter about stable coins, and in particular, there is a, a warning which looks very prescient in this environment that you should never ever try to build a stable coin using algorithmic stabilization because it's just plain impossible. It doesn't make any sense, and if I'm I'm surprised by the vigor with which. Uh, you know, promoters of such uh, ideas and their backers and among uh, VCs and so on jump on these ideas. But I mean, if you just think about it in terms of common sense, you will see that uh, such a algorithmic stabilization is simply impossible. And I have to say that I have to say that even in the old days, the great uh, uh, Black, right? So the Fisher Black wrote a paper saying that you can stabilize the price of gold and stuff like that without holding any gold. At that time, it was a pure theoretical construct, and I was always puzzled by why he went into this direction. It's one of his lesser-known papers, of course, but uh, you know, it seems like this idea that you can do something by dynamically adjusting things. Uh, captures people's imagination because you you seem to be able to create something stable uh, out of something unstable. Whilst I would say the most remarkable example of ordinary mechanical implements, which you know can indeed work like that, is that if you move the, the if you take a pencil and put it on its tip, and then you move it you know, kind of the tip sufficiently fast and in a sufficiently determined uh, way, then this pencil will become stable. And more remarkably, you can make it stable at any angle, which is really, truly 
an astonishing uh, feat, and it was discovered by the great Russian physicist Peter uh, Peter Kapitz. However, in finance, it's not really possible, and you know people will save themselves infinite amount of trouble and uh, untold billions lost if they just uh, you know follow the common sense and you know just read the book, for example. Uh, which is a relatively easy thing to do and uh, and heed what is said there. So, uh, indeed, and I actually wanted to ask uh, uh, about uh, exactly the sentence that you uh, pointed out uh, from your book. Uh, in there, if I'm not mistaken, you explain the mechanism uh, by which a stablecoin is kept stable by producing more currency or reducing uh, currency, and the uh, Production of currency is financed by uh, issuing bonds. Right. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, um, in the case uh, of um, cryptocurrencies uh, or stable coins, they are backed by other type of securities. It, does that mechanism still hold? Um, I so think the argument so. in the in the book is that uh, the old uh, the old castle will crash when you have to repay those bonds. Uh, but if your um, if the securities you use to to back the cryptocurrency in this case are not bonds, does this apply anyway? Uh, it's an excellent question. So in the book we explain that there are three, or in fact four, but the fourth one is so kind of obscure that I will. Look. I mean, the, there are three ways of building a stable coin. You fully collateralize it, which makes it less decentralized than you probably would like to. But nevertheless, if it's regulatory compliant and so on, you can really stabilize it. Short of, of course, uh, you know, really sort of uh, potentially inevitable, you know, technical glitches and stuff like that. that that's sort of. Unfortunately, that cannot be avoided, but at least, you know, from a market risk perspective and so on, when you have a full full collateralization with fiat, then the coin would indeed be stable, right? So that's basically how some of the better coins are built and some coins which are mysterious because we don't know, for example, Tether, whether or not they have full collateral and what mm -hmm. this collateral is. But if this collateral is truly cash or say very short dated uh, government securities and it's fine right so the second possibility which is for you and i is kind of sounds very familiar because it's basically brings us back to an old days of the global financial crisis and so on and so forth and this you know collateral debt obligations and stuff like that so basically you can tranche you can use a lot of collateral in the form of uh, the mm, cryptocurrency itself like for example Eater, and then create tranches, very top end tranches, which would retain their value or being able to liquidate them if there is, uh, you know, margin call and stuff like that. And that is done with massive over collateralization. So short of really catastrophic uh, collapse of the underlying currency like Eater, you will also retain stability. And then the third one, as you said, is algorithmic stabilization, which doesn't use any collateral either in the form of fiat or unstable, but massively over collateralized uh, um, native tokens and simply relies on this dynamic mechanism. So if the coin mm -hmm. goes up in value, you issue more of it. If it goes less in value, you sort of sell bonds and buy this coin back and so on and so forth. But if we speak in terms of conventional, uh, ordinary, forget about uh, 
you know, crypto uh, language. And they simply say there is a company which doesn't do very well. Its stocks goes down. So it wants to stabilize its stock. So it starts to sell bonds and buy the stock back by kind mm-hmm. of pushing it price. Not only it's kind of mildly legal or maybe completely legal, but also it's uh, uh, broadly impossible, right? Because uh, once the company really starts to do poorly, nobody will buy bonds. And even if they do, the value of the bonds will go down and down and down. And that would be an issue. I see. I see. Well, let's talk about uh, what has happened just uh, uh, now in the in the crypto market. So we are recording this on the 11th of May. And right. uh, um, when I checked, uh, USD was trading at uh, about 30 cents of a dollar. Right. So the peg has been uh, lost, uh, I think, yesterday or the day before. Um, and uh, this is the third uh, largest stablecoin, as far as I know. What is your take on what happened? And do you see the risk of something like this happening to other stablecoins? Well, I mean, what happened is that the coin was designed poorly and it did not uh, withstand the uh, you know, it did not withstand the market pressures. And as I said, it's exactly this mechanism. Once people sent, it's entirely possible that there was a big uh, player who wanted to kind of break the peg. And as we know, for example, Soros managed to do it with the British pound, which, you know, <laughs> warts and all, still a mighty currency and, you know, like was supported. Uh, for a while by the entire firepower accumulated by the Bank of England. So um, the old lady of Street Needle, right? So not far where I used to work, I sort of fondly remember mm-hmm. this, um, you know, always. But uh, the point is that, you know, clearly, you know, this uh, terror is not a massive, uh, you know, it's a, not a massive edifice and it can be broken by a concerted effort by a short seller, right? So it's not super difficult, I would say. And, um, and that's what happened. So basically, it's a roughly a Soros moment for Terra, if you wish, right? So... Um, and we don't know who and, that Soros is. Uh, uh, I don't I know. know. I, I don't. And, uh, you know, like people say different things, but I have no idea. But the point to which I want to make is that uh, it is possible that other stablecoin can be affected this way. And, um, you know, some of them have very large capitalization, so it would not be completely trivial. But as I said, those coins which are honestly to honest to goodness uh, supported by the equivalent number of collateral in the form of fiat, those coins are really very, very hard to break because mm. they really have the fiat, uh, you know, uh, fiat as, as, as they do, right? So that would be, you know, my answer. But of course, look, time will tell. So which coins are well capitalized and which coins are not. Hmm? Let's switch to talk about the blockchain technology more in general now, rather than just right. uh, focusing on the currencies. Uh, what financial applications do you see likely to be implemented and uh, which ones are likely to happen first? Well, I mean, I would say that, uh, you know, for example, I have, uh, you know, good, uh, um, um, I have good uh, expectations regarding 
some of the application of decentralized finance and uh, things like that, like for example, automated market makers, I can imagine uh, other things like that. And then potentially there might be decentralized exchanges, but of course, exchange is very hard to build. You know, it's sort of, it only superficially sort of a simple construct. Of course, it's a very complicated uh, construct, but the price to do this, if you manage to build a decentralized exchange would be that you would not need central clearing counterparty, uh, which in a sense uh, do attract a lot of systemic risk by eliminating a non-systemic risk and kind of eliminating, uh, no, by innovating, transactions between two parties uh, to transaction between party one and central clearing counterparty and party two and central clearing counterparty of course remove the risks within uh, uh, clearing counterparties themselves and that was something uh, you know my uh, colleagues uh, Russell Barker and you know Dickinson and uh, Virmani and myself published in Risk. I mean, I actually like this paper; it's an interesting one. But anyway, so this is something to 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 you know, it's an interesting price. If you manage to do a decentralized exchange, you would have some immediacy of exchange and so on and so forth. There are many advantages, but it's hard to do. But it's interesting. And then I see a lot of applications in some mundane but important areas like trade finance and things of that right so um, I would imagine everything which is document based right so like in trade finance you pay against documents rather than goods mm. that potentially can be you know kind of done on the blockchain but time will tell it's still despite the fact that we have been working on it well people have been working on it for 10 years or more it's still uh, very much work in progress, but I do see things like digital assets, right? So tokenization of real assets and making them more amenable to be more liquid, if you wish. That's something mm. which I, in real estate in particular and things like that, I actually see a lot of uh, interest and a lot of work towards this direction and hopefully a lot of good results uh, before too long. But of course, we have to also understand that it's not just technical problem. It is also a problem uh, which is very much legal and uh, things like that. Huh? And uh, I suppose you mentioned also the legal side and the operational side, but I suppose there are other factors as well. So if I ask you what financial instruments are hard or impossible to manage on a blockchain, well, which one would you point at? It's very interesting, actually, that you ask, you know, kind of so far, all the sort of all the transactions which true well, it depends on which blockchain are we talking about if we're talking about a private blockchain open just to a few uh, you know participants by invitation there you can actually do quite a lot right so you know for example you can do all kind of just uh, you know transaction between banks for example right so there are several efforts in this direction right so one company which uh, tries to accomplish this uh, is clearmatics where i have been an advisor for a long time so the other is similar company which is called finality and says that they they want to do this so that's sort of these are things which can be done on the other hand if you go for a purely uh 
public blockchain where parties are really come as anonymous at least if not uh, pseudonymous if not fully anonymous um, there you know the lending and things of that nature is very hard to implement because the aspect of what the banking system does by creating money out of thin air that's another one of my kind of favorite projects and you know the, the monetary circuit theory and stuff like that so that is is not possible to replicate on a fully anonymous uh public blockchain that's why all these transactions really are fully collateralized or in fact over collateralized so that's something which is so truly kind of lending and things like that is really hard to implement the way it is done in odd finance so speaking high finance so uh that's basically what i think also it comes to mind that one more area where you know, blockchains are very natural, and that's something which, uh, you know, I'm thinking about actively is like uh, carbon credit trading exchanges, because you know, carbon credits by their nature, by by their very nature, are some somewhat complicated instruments, and you need to make sure that these are real credits, like created by you know, growing forests or something like that, rather than sort of growing forests and then next year cutting it down and so on. So the kind of wood has to be in the form of trees at least 10 years to accumulate enough, uh, you know, carbon and stuff like that. So these things are uniquely, you know, uh, aligned with the concept of a smart contract and things like that. So basically I would say an area where kind of blockchain can be very beneficial especially to avoid double uh, you know spend and things like that or this carbon credits An area where uh, you know blockchain is difficult to use i would say it's you know this monetary creation so lending lending is hard to mm. to kind of really do properly and aside from uh, the management of these products um, what are the limits of uh, decentralized finance well, I would say it's, uh, you know, time will tell, you know, many very ingenious people are working on that. And I'm sure we will see many interesting developments. But as I said, uh, you know, there are technicalities, there are things related to very high transaction costs on layer uh, one uh, blockchains like Ethereum, where kind of the magnitude of transaction cost becomes an issue in its own right, which sort of prevents you from doing things. And so from that perspective, you probably want to develop layer two solutions where expenses are less uh, you know, pronounced and things are done much faster and things like that. So it's a complicated technical game which is played by several on several uh, chess boards and time will tell you know what will be the end spiel so to speak i see uh, in in previous conversations i think we uh, we mentioned the risk of bugs in codes which can prove very very costly uh, do you see that as a serious threat for yes. users yes Yes, it is really, really important thing because smart contracts, uh, as they were kind of invented by uh, Vitalik Buterin, the father of uh, Ethereum and so on, are not smart at all. In fact, they're very dumb in some respect. And they also voracious consumers of collateral, as I explained, 
that you know truly borrowing and lending between parties who do not know each other and are not linked in any meaningful way is not possible unless it's fully collateralized now with by definition this smart quote-unquote contract or better to say subroutines perhaps you know if we give them they use subroutines um they cannot be reversed pretty much so if there is a bug then this contracts will be exploited until there is no, no monetary value left and uh, in the process they cannot be stopped and things like that so this is not quite the same as conventional coding where you know bugs are inevitable right so and they can you know be eliminated on occasion and if they appear hopefully they will not cause uh, dramatic and complete meltdown of the operation right so they should be you know kind of relatively minor right so but uh, you know with smart contracts uh, you know these bugs can be completely detrimental and it did happen many a time and continues to happen so it's basically it puts a completely different level of integrity on the code which is very hard to achieve that's why if you were to write a smart contract, you have to do it, and then you have to pay to somebody, some other pair of eyes to check it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I see. Uh, do you think the success of a uh, blockchain is um, linked inevitably to the ability to process smart contracts? Or do you think a blockchain can be uh, successful just as an exchange of cryptocurrencies? Uh, in my mind, the exchange of cryptocurrencies per se is of, of less interest than, of course, improvements in the operation of the uh, financial infrastructure, or better to say, decentralized financial infrastructure. That's something which interests me. And with, a number, with several people, uh, we published a paper in the journal FinTech about this and so on and so forth. So I think uh, that uh, success of... Uh, uh, in okay, so basically, success of a smart contract in a protocol which can be viewed as a consensus as a service provider at a reasonable price. I want to emphasize the word mm -hmm. at a reasonable price, not at a prohibitive price, which, for example, Ethereum does right now, but at a reasonable price, um, would be a major, major development. So, in my mind, exchanges of cryptocurrencies, well should be left to those people who enjoy doing things like that as i was explaining somewhere else uh, we now live in a situation when the usual aristotelian observation that money is a product of law and can be abolished or introduced at will and so on and so forth now it's kind of the, for the first time in 2000 years there's a deviation so money uh, kind of pseudo money a monetary like instruments are being introduced through entertainment so the entertainment <laughs> value is adding a lot to the cache interesting uh, and moving on from financial uh, uses uh, do you uh, see non-financial applications you mentioned some in your book um, but do you see some of them being um, implemented soon or well, actually, are any of them uh, already in existence, as far as you uh, know? Yes, Can you mention far, some? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I think that, uh, uh, you know, supply chain management is uniquely uh, fine with uh, blockchain thinking, and that is happening as we speak. And, you know, I know that the Myers cannot 
others uh, you know are using some things of that nature and uh, these are typical examples and particularly right now when uh, supply chains are really in poor shape and you know going up and down and all the type of thing so you know being able to control them and you know monitor them in real time is very very beneficial the other area where i think uh, it is quite important uh, non-tangible uh, um, uh, non-fungible tokens nfts that's something which is quite interesting i think not from the standpoint of buying uh, you know boring apes or something like that that's not what i mean but creating a hybrid you know physical slash digital you know representations and using them for a variety of purposes uh, real purposes i think is uh, super promising the other area where i think uh, we can expect something really exciting is a hybrid physical slash digital banknotes that's something which several people are thinking about and i have started to think about it as well it's an interesting possibility of using banknotes until finally they are digitized and then again uh, materialize and stuff like that so that's really fascinating i think is that uh, the same thing as saying uh, a central bank digital currency no it's not quite, quite that it's really a hybrid instrument where occasionally it's being used as physical banknote and occasionally it's dematerialized and switched into digital ones so i know again that uh, certain central banks are entertaining this but again i'm not at liberty to elaborate uh, what the banks are doing this and why but clearly this is a very fascinating thing to do interesting last question for you alex and linking back to the paper that we just published what's next any application you have in mind you're uh, working on oh uh, yes i'm working on quite a few to be perfectly honest um you know one of the bigger ones for me is um, you know climate change and uh, you know possibly uh carbon credit trading and things like that and then the other interesting area where um, you know marcus uh, lopez de prada and i are thinking about things are you know this uh, um design you know optimization of trading strategies in the presence of drawdowns and things like that so optimizing the probability of success given you know your tolerance to drawdowns that is something which requires new mathematical developments and uh, uh, which i think uh, has uh, a good chance of uh, changing the way we actually do investing looking forward to hearing more about that alex thanks very much for joining us today it was very interesting talking to you Thank you, Maura. As always, my pleasure, and I appreciate your very um, perceptive and uh, probing questions. I hope <laughs> we will have a chance to speak again before too long. Of course, we will. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye-bye.